we have a chronically depredating wolf pack for the last four to five years, the Chess Nimnus pack, and it's devastating to the livestock producers out here. Welcome back to The Working Wild You, a show where we explore what it means to share the working landscape with people and wildlife. From the crossroads of culture and science, I'm Alex Few. And I'm Jared Beaver. And you just heard from Tom Berkmeyer. Third generation rancher out in the Chesnimnus country. We run cow-calf pairs on uh, public lands and the rest on private. The Chesnimnus country he's referring to, that's in Oregon, the northeast corner to be exact. This area tucked up in Wallowa County has it all. Mountains, high prairies, rivers, montane forest, abundant elk, and rangelands to support livestock production and wolves. And yes, quite a few wolves. During this season, we've been spending a lot of time in the Northern Rockies, in the states where gray wolves first returned to the West, whether by reintroduction or recolonization. But it just so happens that dispersing wolves from Idaho dinned in both Eastern Oregon and Washington in the same year, 2008. And with different geographies, different management goals, and different politics defining these states, wolves entered a new push-pull of politics and management. That's right. There's a really sharp divide between the big cities, Seattle and Portland on the coast, west of the mountains, and the vast eastern part of the state, which is dominated by agricultural land. So these states are basically split geographically and somewhat politically down the middle. And wildlife managers in Oregon and Washington are trying to strike a tricky balance. They're looking to manage the impacts of wolves on livestock producers in the eastern half of the state, while looking to address the desires of many folks in the western half of the state, where the cities are, who want to see wolves return to much of their habitable range. Basically, state wildlife biologists are just getting yelled at from both sides of the issue. It's tough to make anyone happy. And while incorporating these multiple values is admirable, managers are running into challenges. A working middle path is hard to come by in a situation this polarizing. I think that the problem, honestly, is it comes down to politics. There's just groups that are tugging people from both sides into that space that creates, you know, this rural-urban divide. We're really just increasing the divide between everyone. Mm -hmm. um, it's just causing a lot more stress. It's causing distrust, a lot of distrust. Um, it's causing increasing tension. And I think it's definitely increased a lot of, like, on the down low wolf killings. Um, I think if we had a more open system, I think if we were following the wolf plan, I think if we had options for... Um, you know, lethal take of wolves that were causing problems, I don't think you would see entire packs wiped out with poison. As you can hear, the situation in these states has become quite tense recently. Eight wolves were poisoned in Oregon in December of 2021, a symptom of declining tolerance towards their presence in some parts of the state. To be clear, this has not been associated with livestock producers. Also, there's currently an $11,500 reward for information leading to the identification of the person responsible for shooting, 
and killing an alpha female in the Lookout Mountain Pack on October 2nd, 2022. And today, we're going to talk about what it looks like to manage and live with wolves within states experiencing the push-pull of a real urban-rural divide. And after the break, we'll be taking you to Wallawa County, where Tom and his wife Kelly have been giving it their all to find ways to live with wolves that have been causing them a whole bunch of trouble. Working Wild U is a proud part of Natural Resources University, a podcast network delivering science-based information for your natural resource management. Other current network series include Timber University, Fish University, Deer University, Fire University, and Habitat University. Available wherever you get your podcasts. In the summer of 2022, I visited Wallawa County to meet with ranchers at Ground Zero for Oregon's wolf livestock conflicts. Right now we're on national forest land. Um, Almost everything that we're looking at to the south of us between here and the Wallawas is all private land. I met up with a ranch family in the thick of it, Tom and Kelly Berkmeyer and their two boys, to hear how things were going. This is a common area that the wolves travel through. We've had depredations two miles in about every direction from this spot. The den of the Chestnut Pack is about five miles from us um, right now. We have nearly 100% calf crop during calving. That's, I mean, we're going to have some loss, but we usually get enough twins to make up for the loss. So we turned out 100% out here this year, and I'm already down 5.5%, you know. Yeah. So anywhere from 0 to 1% right. is our normal loss out here. And because Tom takes so much pride in his animal husbandry, he is confident that he can attribute this loss to wolf depredation. And I don't know of a single loss that we have had in in the history of our ranch to a bear or a cougar out here. But he is really taking these challenges head on at significant personal cost. You know, I, I just don't believe in throwing my hands in the air and saying it's the cost of doing business in wolf country. Um... I I really struggled to accept that, and um, so I'm out here as much as I possibly can be. Um, Sleeping with the cows if need be, like this year, was just, has been horrendous. Um, This is a man that refused to give up. This is his livelihood that he takes great pride in. The desperation in his voice, that's because he feels like he has tried everything. He's plumb worn out. I just wasn't going to give in to them. Um, I've got nearly 600 hours out here with the cows at night in my pickup. These were hours when I was, you know, awake and walking around um, using AM, FM radios, placing them, critter getters, uh, fox lights. This takes a lot of time. Time away from all the other things that make a livestock operation profitable. Not to mention time with your family or simply time to sleep. I'm not getting my fences done. I'm not seeing my family. I'm not getting irrigating done. There's, I mean, I generally am working 60, 70 hours a week. Kelly and I both are on this ranch, and um, it's 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 just been it's just been devastating this year trying to get everything done and manage our ranch and the family. Tom has gone all in to try to do whatever is in his power to reduce conflicts whether that be staying up all night or advocating for the needs of his community. 
with this whole wolf situation, a lot of these other ranchers are watching Tom and watching ODFNW and watching what happens. That's Tom's wife, Kelly, talking about Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife, or ODFW. Kelly is a professional rangeland management specialist and consultant, and she works on the ranch. She's an expert in her own right. And they know his work ethic. They know how he is with his cattle. They know how his cattle are. And they all feel that if Tom can't get this done, if Tom can't work with this agency, then who are we? On top of this, like most things wolf-related, there's been increasing tension due to the perceived lack of responsiveness to chronic depredations as outlined by ODFW's wolf plan. And we've heard over and over from ranchers that they just want ODFW, Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife, to follow the wolf plan. And on the other side, wolf managers are saying, we're just following the wolf plan. And that rancher moved cows off and had a kefir two bit up and did not bother to call. He was done. I'm about the last person playing right now due to the frustrations. And I'm doing it for myself and for my fellow ranchers to force ODF&W through what we are doing out here, this documentation, um, this incredible amount of non-lethal, to force them to follow the wolf plan and to protect our cattle. After several depredations and a whole lot of lost sleep, the Burkmeyers felt like the next logical step was for ODFW to use another tool in the toolbox. They had reached the point defined in the Oregon Wolf Management Plan as chronic depredation, where lethal management comes an option. And that's after a minimum of two depredations in a nine-month period. Let's be clear. Lethal management is killing wolves and is one way to prevent conflict. But Oregon has a few requirements that must be in place before lethal control becomes a viable option. Namely, that non-lethal conflict prevention tools are in place and that their use is well documented. These requirements by the Oregon Wolf Plan leave a lot open to interpretation. And that flexibility can be a good thing, but it requires trust. And right now, that's hard to come by. And here is where the wolf management plan in Oregon gets stuck between a rock and a hard place. As we learned last episode, Oregon is looking to simultaneously support wolf dispersal into one part of the state while adaptively managing conflict in another. For many people in the state, in this country more broadly, lethal control can be a tough pill to swallow. But also for folks who are living with wolves in Oregon, lethal control is an important marker that wolf managers are reacting appropriately to livestock depredations and following the agreed upon steps in the Oregon Wolf Plan. Here's Roblin Brown, Oregon's wolf coordinator, on how ODFW sees lethal control. A wolf population can withstand about 15% loss during the year and still have a growing population. So limited lethal removal does not stop the conservation of wolves in Oregon. It's important to respond appropriately in the rare instances where wolves show they are primarily taking livestock, not natural prey. That can benefit wolf management and social tolerance. So in an attempt to balance these different perspectives, wolf managers in Oregon have resorted to incremental pack removal, where they issue permits to remove one or two wolves at a time. So let's take a close look at what this might mean for reducing conflicts. Okay, let's go back to a 2015 paper by Liz Bradley. This study found that without lethal control, a depredation event was typically followed by another 
an average of 19 days later. But when agencies removed part of the pack within a week or two after that first depredation, the average time to the next depredation event increased to 64 days. The study also found full pack removal increased the average time to the next depredation event to 730 days, or about two years. There appears to be a lot of conflicting data on this. An often cited paper by Wilgus and Peoples found that for each wolf killed, the odds of future depredation increases. And in analyzing this data, they missed one important factor that the wolf population significantly increased during the 25-year study period. But with lethal control, there's a long history of using science to support one's values. And science hasn't really reached consensus when it comes to incremental pack removal. Let's hear how ODFW has been managing chronic depredations. Our goal for lethal removal is not retribution for the loss of livestock. We are doing lethal removal to reduce currently occurring depredation. We've had some good success with targeting specific animals and incremental removal in Oregon. Sometimes we know it's the yearlings that are depredating. In that case, we'd focus on the yearlings. Some research shows that removing the entire pack will provide a longer window without depredation. We've done that a couple times in Oregon when it was the best option. But another viable option is to use an estate with less than 200 wolves is to remove a few at a time incrementally. It may end up with the entire pack being removed, but so far it has also resolved conflict several times before the whole pack was removed. And what Roblin is describing is an approach taken by a lot of other states when the wolf population was small. It's not like they have a thousand wolves in Oregon, like they do in Montana and Idaho now. And while we can talk about effectiveness of lethal control and share science and all of that other jazz, it really comes down to values. We hear from producers across the West. They want to be recognized for the positive values they provide for society. Contributions that aren't so easy to appreciate when you live in an urban area. Let's hear from Kelly Berkmar. I think the biggest issue, honestly, in that regard is that a lot of urban folks have a misconception of what's happening out in these rural areas. It's not like we're exterminating the entire wolf population. If anything, we're just trying to control what's become a problem. And they don't understand that that could mean a ranch making it or breaking it. And then they don't understand the repercussions of that ranch making or breaking it. You know, for them it's like, oh, it's just a ranch, right, but it's also what keeps this small community alive and active. And if you wipe out this community, there's other ranchers that are going to go. Some folks may never see lethal control as a viable conflict reduction technique. And some folks may see it as the only viable conflict reduction technique. And neither are necessarily true. It's important to remember that wolves are resilient and lethal control can be an incredibly important tool in wolf management. And the same goes for range riding or fladry or any other conflict prevention tool. All of these actions represent a spectrum of wolf management that professional wildlife biologists and livestock producers need to be able to access depending on the circumstance on any given operation. And these operations are living systems that are constantly changing. In order to make space for wolves on working lands, we need folks who care for working and wild places to remain economically viable. So if we're thinking about building bridges between the rural and urban divide, we've heard loud and clear. Livestock producers want appropriate, science-informed use of lethal control 
to help reduce conflict. And bridging the gap is important here. It opens the door for continued conversation, which can lead to effective collaboration. After the break, we'll talk to someone who's thinking deeply about an evidence-based approach to conflict prevention and lethal control. Hey, Working Wild, you listeners. We think you'll like another show from the Western Landowners Alliance, the Onland Podcast, a show that features thoughtful conversations with people who are living and working on the land and shaping the future of stewardship in the American West. The Onland Podcast is the audio companion of Onland, the magazine of the Western Landowners Alliance. Check it out at onland.westernlandowners.org and listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. Just over the border, you'll find a lot of parallels in Washington state. In the northeast corner of the state, livestock producers have been living with wolves for about 14 years. The wolf populations up in the areas around Colville are considered recovered, but like Oregon, wolf managers are looking to use this area as a source population to support dispersal into other portions of the state. It's the wolf recovery plan, it, it calls for that dispersion of wolves into the, all three recovery zones. That's Jay Shepard. He's a biologist and wolf program lead with Conservation Northwest. And you can guess that that makes people mad. You know, in a way, they're living with wolves that are called endangered, but they are well recovered and they have been here for years. Jay helps run a program called the Northeast Washington Wolf Cattle Collaborative that coordinates the placement of about 20 range riders with livestock producers. These range riders work to help reduce conflicts and monitor livestock in areas that wolves frequent. And much of the funding for this program comes through the Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife. It's amazing the people we have as a group, the dedication levels, um, and the lack of wanting to be involved politically or to talk about it in a political manner. You know, just their allegiance to helping the ranchers is, is amazing. And, and the rancher was the last say in who gets to ride their allotment. And we also meet a couple times a month. So every two weeks we sit down and, and they talk a lot because <laughs> they really like each other. Clearly, there is some good collaboration and trust building going on in Washington. But similar to Oregon... There are also underlying tensions in how wolves are managed within the state. There's a lot of it, and there's just groups that are tugging people from both sides um, into that space that creates, you know, this rural-urban divide or this huge divide we have in the country. And kind of working in that middle ground is difficult right now. And one of those middle grounds that Jay is trying to find in Washington as a solution for better integrating conflict prevention, that's the non-lethal stuff, with lethal control. We need to understand how does range riding work? Does it work for starters? How much we can depend on it to work? You know, on the flip side, it's not really the flip side because I think they're connected. Um, experimenting with lethal control and seeing what, what aspect of that works best. And by working best, I don't mean 
what aspect kills wolves to make them stop killing cattle? I mean, what aspect of lethal control has some level of lethal removal while killing the least amount of wolves possible? And potentially, you know, I think if we tried to figure out how it worked best, we could probably kill less wolves than we do. And in order to do that, we need to better understand when and where it is effective to use these practices. Where can we find win-win solutions that work for wildlife conservation and agricultural production? I would like to see um, some form of humane padded leg hold trapping and then euthanizing. Trapping humanely and euthanizing has a lot of support from the ranching community too. So, you know, that's interesting, but you know, it's resource intensive. What Jay's talking about here is that once a wolf pack learns to kill livestock, it becomes more than an opportunistic killing. It can be hard to stop. Wolves are social learners. They teach those behaviors within their pack and those learned behaviors can persist for generations. But if you can nip it in the bud, then you can theoretically prevent an escalation to chronic conflict and whole pack removal. There are some real constraints to identifying individuals responsible for depredation and trapping them in a timely manner. It's not super feasible given the resource constraints within wildlife management. And rather than removing that tool, we need to be thinking about how best to innovate the use of lethal control along with all the other tools to be as effective as possible. But currently there's significant top-down pressure in Washington state to reduce the use of lethal control. In a recent lawsuit, environmental groups are suing the Forest Service for allegedly creating conditions for chronic conflict on an allotment in the Kettle Range on the Colville National Forest in Northeast Washington. In a press release, Wild Earth Guardians, Western Watersheds Project, and the Kettle Range Conservation Group cite the killing of 26 wolves in this area since 2012 as the motivating factor. Litigation over lethal control or wolf management can happen when collaboration breaks down, when either side of folks on this rural-urban divide think that the state or federal agencies are not supporting their interests or needs as chronic conflict continue. The WAG, the Wolf Advisory Group in Washington, has tried to address this by creating high-conflict zones and having conflict specialists from the state develop chronic conflict zone maps. So the Washington Wolf Advisory Group is composed of diverse stakeholders in wolf management, and they make recommendations to reduce wolf conflicts that are aligned with the state's wolf conservation and management plan. That fell through pretty hard. Uh, Last year, the state declined to go lethal because non-lethal was not good enough, and all ranches rejected the chronic conflict zone management style. So um, what are you going to do? I don't know. There's just kind of this fundamental difference in worldview between those people that did that lawsuit and the ranch that has been um, grazing in their kettle mountain allotments since 1947. And so, you know, it is public land. It's owned by all, all, and the wolves are owned by all the people in the state. But they've had those allotments for a long time. So they feel a sense of ownership too, and that it's an attack on their livelihood. In this Kettle Range lawsuit, public lands grazing's the real issue here, as it is in many other battles involving wolves on public lands. And when we get back, 
we're going to go a step deeper into the changing values that underpin all of this conflict over wolves and lethal management. Hey listener, we really appreciate you listening to Working Wild U. And we have a small favor to ask. Please head over to our show notes and fill out the listener survey. We want to learn more about you and what impact this show is having. Your feedback will inform how we make the show in the future and help us obtain funding so we can continue this important work. Thank you. Now back to the show. So far, we've discussed what wolf management looks like in the Pacific Northwest and how really a lot of the conflict stems from the management practice of lethal control. And even the presence of public land grazing in the first place. And really underlying all of this conflict around lethal control is a fundamental shift in the way that some folks view wildlife in the West. Starting in the 1990s, researchers began documenting this shift, which they paint as a move from traditional relationships with wildlife to mutualistic relationships. And while this is kind of science jargon categories for wildlife values, really, simply put, traditionalists are those who believe animals should be used for the purposes that benefit humans. So let's think hunting or medical research. And on the other hand, mutualists often believe that animals deserve the same basic rights as people. They project human traits onto animals. So think Bambi. So as states like Oregon and Washington urbanize, the population is increasingly thinking of wolves more as people. And this makes management like lethal control less palatable to an increasing percentage of the population. If we want to link this back to the wolves, What's happening in Oregon is more of a preservation aspect of wolf management as opposed to a conservation aspect of wolf management. And because we're working in fear and preserving, because we're afraid, we being the agency folks, of getting litigated against, they're not managing the wolf population. What Kelly's getting at is that this wildlife value shift towards this mutualist view is putting increasing pressure on management agencies to forgo lethal management. And really, this comes at the expense of relationships. Relationships between producers and wildlife agencies and chronic conflicts where people are earning a living alongside wolves. I think that most wolf advocates and ranchers have more in common than different. Both are concerned about the health of the land because it takes healthy habitat to support wildlife and livestock. Livestock producers are by definition caregivers. Strong positive feelings about the land they steward and the wildlife they see every day. There is room for common ground here, accepting that wolves and livestock have a place on the landscape. And we need to move forward with the knowledge that many ranching communities are doing their best to reduce conflicts in the first place. Next time, we'll be jumping into a big project that Jared and I are both working on, along with a lot of other folks. And this project is all about supporting land stewards working to prevent wolf-livestock conflicts. Hope to see you next time. Working Wild U is a production of Montana State University Extension and Western Landowners Alliance with support from the Arthur M. Blank Family Foundation, Western Sayre, and listeners like you.
Today's episode was directed and edited by Zach Altman and produced by Matthew Collins, Zach Altman, Alex Few, Jared Beaver, and Abby Nelson, with editing support from Kathleen Shannon. Our hosts are Jared Beaver and Alex Few. Louis Wirtz is our executive producer. Music is from Artlist and Blue Dot Sessions. Special thanks to Tom and Kelly Berkmeyer, Roblin Brown, Kim Kearns, and Jay Shepard. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.